All right. Good morning, church. Good morning. If you got a Bible, and I hope you do, open with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 um, is where we're going to be at this morning. We got a lot of ground to cover today, uh, and I really need uh, the power of the Spirit to be on the message because there's some stuff uh, that is, I think, difficult. So let's pray, and then we'll get right started, okay? Pray with me. Dear God, thank you so much um, for your word this morning. Uh, Lord, I do just pray for the power of the Spirit on the word, God. Lord, um, inside of the word is, is power for change. Inside of the word is power for transformation. Inside of the word um, is power for us to know you and love you, God. And so I pray today that you would bring that change about through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would cover up the foolish ramblings of a man, and that your name would be made known. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so on June 6, 1944, let me take you back to a famous day in history. June 6, 1944, we know that that was the day that the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy to begin to take back uh, what the German uh, army had taken of Western Europe. Uh, and so if you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, which I'm assuming that if you are a red-blooded American, you have, okay? Um, and even if you're not an American, you should go watch it, okay? It's good. It's just good. It's a good movie. Uh, Saving Private Ryan. This is what we see in the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan when they storm the beaches. Anybody remember this? June 6, 1944, D-Day. And while that is an exceptionally important day, in American history, it was just the start of ta the taking back uh, of Europe from the, uh, from the Nazis as they had steamrolled across all the way uh, to the French coast. And, and so the, the conquest to take back uh, Western Europe uh, went pretty smooth in the beginning days of the summer. During the opening months of the summer, America, uh, the, I say American, we know it was American, the Allied forces, right? Um, the Allied forces, along with the British, the, the British and the French, uh, took back most of uh, France and uh, all of Belgium and made their way up to the German uh, border, the German mainland. And when they approached the German mainland, they started to stall because Germany had had time to refortify their lines, the, their, their lines of defense. So as, far, as summer turned into fall and then fall turned into winter, the Allied forces began to stall out. And the stall lasted all of the fall into the beginning of winter when something unexpected happened to the Allied forces. On December 16th, the Allied forces woke up to the German an army uh, uh, counterattacking in what would become known as the Battle of the Bulge. Now, this is really important that you understand why it was called the Battle of the Bulge. If you'll imagine with me for just a second, the Allied forces had formed a line across all of France and all of Belgium and a sweeping, uh, sweeping arc marching forward uh, toward, toward the German homeland. So they had a, basically a force line that was moving in a direction, taking over um, Western Europe to try to defeat the Nazis. Now, as they approached the German mainland, this line had stalled out, and here's what the Germans understood, that if they were going to defeat the forces of the Allied, the Allied forces, they would have to break that line and then divide the, divide the forces. Does that make sense? So what happened was, on December 16th, the German army started a counterattack directly at the center of that line and started pushing back the Allied forces. And they made a lot of ground. This is why it's called the Battle of the Bulge, because that line bulged all the way in, and the German forces almost separated the, the Allied forces. And if they had have, would have probably then pushed the Allied forces back to the coast and may have prolonged the war, if not ended it for in favor of the Germans. And so the German forces pushed back this line until they came to the city of Bastogne. And at the city of Bastogne, they found a group of men known as the 101st Airborne. 
Okay? And when, the, when they ran into the 101st Airborne, up until that point, it had been break, break, break. But at the, when they ran into the 101st Airborne, the 101st Airborne fought day and night for about two weeks to defend the German forces, to, to defend off the German forces. And they fought day and night until they, until they were relieved by a guy named General Patton, and then they pushed the uh, German army back to the German mainland. Why am I telling you that? Uh, some of you are like, I didn't sign up for what well, history lesson i'm on stage you're not deal with it all right <laughs> why am i telling you that because this is what the american forces understood that if you are going to win a battle and ultimately win a war you have to be able to hold the line when everything else is coming against you that when the pressures are coming against you when everything is forcing you to step back that if you want to win the battle if you want to win the war you have to be able to stand firm and not give way to the enemy as we come to the end of uh, Philippians chapter 3, what um, I think we've determined over the past few weeks is maybe one of the most important chapters in the Bible uh, as it, declare, as it uh, clarifies for us what the gospel is, the best news in all the world, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And then Paul urges us on this mission to pursue Jesus with all we have. He's going to close out Philippians 3 with, a, uh, with an uh, uh, argument to make us a metaphorical 101st. He's going to come to us and say, hold the line even though this may get hard he's going to come to us and say okay here's the best news in all the world now dig in hold your ground and don't give an inch that's what we're going to see in, in philippians chapter 3 he's going to actually spell out for us how it is that we can hold the line and not give an inch so if you got your bibles open with me to philippians chapter 3 uh, i'm actually going to start in verse 16 verse 17 is on the screen but I want you to see verse 16. I want you to see how I'm getting this. Verse 16, he closes out that section of Scripture by saying this, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So he's given us this best news in all the world, that Jesus Christ is worth everything. We should pursue him with all we are. And he says, let us hold true. Do not give an inch. In other words, hold on to this news and don't back up off of it. And then in verse 17, he begins to spell out for us how we're to do it. How are we to hold the line? The first thing we see in verse 17, if we're going to hold the line, we've got to find good examples. Find good examples. I want you to look at verse 17 with me. It says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, I'm going to read this whole passage in just a second but I, 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 or as we go, but I think it's important to, to understand the instructions he's given us as we walk through it. In order to hold the line, the first thing that we have to do is we have to find good examples. Point number one, we have to find good examples. In this passage, Paul is urging us to participate in a process called discipleship. In other words, he's urging us to participate in the process process of growing closer to Jesus Christ. And I want you to see how he says this in verse 17. We're going to put verse 17 on the screen. Look what it says. Join in imitating me. Join in imitating me. In other words, lock your eyes on how I'm doing this and then do it. Okay? And then keep your eyes on the good example. Now, Paul understands here something that a lot of, in, in modern Christianity, I think we're, we've lost by and large. He understands that following Jesus is caught, not taught. Yeah. 
Okay, is everybody understand? Following Jesus is caught, not taught. See, I think by and large in the modern church, we've uh, kind of misapplied what it means to grow in our relationship with Jesus such that a lot of times we think to grow in our relationship with Jesus means to be taught a bunch of information, right? So when we start thinking about what it means to be a more mature Christian, what we think is I've got to understand this better, right? And that and I've got to get all the information from this. And that's a part of it. It's just not all of it. This is why we see people, when they want to start growing in their relationship, they start trying to go to the harder things of Scripture, right? And this is why they start reading Revelation to try to understand what it says, right? Like, oh, I need to, I need to find out a little bit more about God, so let me open up the book, to the book of Revelation, which no one in 2,000 years has understood. Maybe I'll get it, right? <laughs> and and what, what are we thinking? That a little bit more information is what will help me grow. Now, Paul understands that's not how the Christian walk works. It's not just information, it's transformation. And the way we learn transformation is by being caught, not taught. You catch it, you pick up on it. This is why, listen, as much as I hope you think I'm the best preacher in all the world, right? Preach on preacher, amen, okay? As much as I hope you think that, this is why I will never be a good enough preacher to give you what you need to grow in your relationship with Jesus. This is the starting point of your relationship with Jesus, not the ending point, not the race, right? This is why me yelling at you is not a, not a good enough uh, uh, tool to learn how to be a better husband or a better wife. You know what you need to do to learn how to be a better husband or a better wife? Find someone who's doing that and then copy them. Look at, look at this strategy here. It's a, it's a bold strategy. Look what he says. Brothers, join in imitating me. Let's just talk about how bold of a statement that is just to start with. Join in, in imitating me. Now, here's the thing. I'm the preacher, so like you guys all look at me as like the professional Christian, all right? Now, here's what I would say. Join in imitating me. I would say that by and large, if you want to learn how to be a good Christian, follow me around for 24 hours, and then in general, do everything the exact opposite, okay? Paul says, though, hey, you want to learn how to be a good Christian? Imitate me. Find good examples, and then do what they do, right? And so, but he says, do it for me, but not only just do it for me. Look, find other good examples, and then keep your eyes on them. See, what Paul knows is that you pick up more with your eyes than you do with your ears. When you see it done, what happens is you say, that's what Dallas meant when he said X. Does that make sense? So... How does that play out in the church? How do we find good examples in the church? Paul wants us to find good examples. Paul's dead. All we got is his letters, right? So how do we in the church, okay? And I want to talk about two ways we do this in the church. And this is really important practically for where we're going as the health of the church, uh, with the health of the church in general. The first way we, we find good examples in church is in community. It's in groups, okay? Now, real quick. If, and this is just a, a bottom line reality. If you want to learn how to follow Jesus, you need to surround yourself with people who are trying to follow Jesus. It's not rocket science. We learn to follow Jesus in community with other people who are following Jesus. Now, I, I, and, I, and I think this is a goal of mine as we move forward to, for us to begin to understand just how important groups are for this church. I, and I, I know that y'all don't believe this, but a lot of times when I'm preaching, I'm thinking, right? Some of y'all are like, that blows me away, right? But a lot of times when I'm preaching, I'm thinking, as I look out of here, as I look out and I see the people in this room, it's my hope that within a year, I'll be able to look out at the people in this room and not be able to find a, more than just a percentage of people who are the new guests who are not in groups because you you this is the way we actually grow it starts here and then it happens in groups this is why christianity is not an individual affair 
We live in this 21st century modern Western world, right, where everything is like enlightenment individualism, where it's all about us and individual responsibility. And listen to me, I'm all for individual responsibility. I'm all for enlightenment. But here's what I need you to understand, that there is a corporate element to your relationship with Jesus. Here's what I mean. Your relationship with Christ is meant to grow by being around other people who are following Jesus. Your relationship with Christ is meant to grow by being around other people who are following Jesus. And now let me just be mean for just a second. That's your responsibility to find that. It's your responsibility to find that. You will find it if you want to find it, and you won't find it if you don't want to find it. But there's more to that, okay? Listen to me. Your relationship with Christ is also meant to help others grow. So get this double aspect here. If you don't plug into community at the church like you're supposed to, not only are you missing out on the benefit, but someone else is missing out on the blessing that you were supposed to be giving them. Amen. This is why the author of Hebrews says it this way. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. In other words, it takes community. It takes being around people who want to follow Jesus for you to be stirred up to follow Jesus. This is why hey, you don't come to church in a couple weeks. You know what you don't feel like doing? Coming to church. Because it takes that, being around that, in order to spur that on. And notice what he says. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Now, that's how I like preaching. You call somebody out, right? He, what is, what's he saying? Some of y'all done started neglecting this, all right? I'm going to say that to y'all. Some of y'all done started neglecting this. You come, you come to church when you can, how you can, right? And what's Paul saying? That this is not how your relationship with Christ works. That that's not how you're going to grow. This is why I want everybody in this room in a group. So let me just tell it to you just for a second about how groups work, okay? And we start, this is something we've started putting a lot of energy into at the church, okay? And so the, way, the, the easiest way, if you think, well, I need to get in a group right now, how do I do it? We started doing what's called group links. We do them one in the fall and one in the spring. And we, guess what? We're going into the fall, so you've got an opportunity coming up here on August 29th. So on August 29th, we're going to have what's called a group link. Now, hear me say this, all right? It's kind of like speed dating. Anybody ever been on a speed date? Don't it's embarrassing, all right? If you've, ever, if you've ever been speed dating, it's kind of like speed dating. And what you're going to walk outside this room, you're going to go up to see all the people who have a group, and you're going to find someone who you like. Now, here's what's going to happen. You're going to walk up to somebody, and you're going to think, this person's kind of weird. You know what you do? You hit that buzzer, and you go on to the next, okay? <laughs> it's, just like, it's just like speed dating, okay? And what eventually will happen that day is you'll find somebody, and they'll be weird in the same way that you're weird, and you'll like that, and then you'll join their group, okay? August 29th, you need to put that on your calendar, all right? If you don't join a group that day, you're dead to me. <laughs> Glad you thought that was funny, okay? Seriously, that, that, day, that day we need to be in community. Here's the deal. You grow corporately. Growth is a group, is a group project. Growth was never meant to be something you were doing on your own. And so listen... As much as there is no substitute for getting along with the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, having the Holy Spirit speak to you, do you know the way that's confirmed and the way that actually grows up in your life? It's by getting in a group. So that, that groups are one way, all right? How do we find good examples? Get in a group. You need to be in a group, okay? Second way we find good examples is this, in mentoring. In mentoring. Now, this is a little bit more, uh, a little bit more organic, but I'm going to be um, kind of tough on us for a second here, okay? Notice the first thing he says, join in imitating me. Now, this is a, a personal invitation to look at my life and then do the things that I do, okay? A personal invitation. So it's undeniable that at some level, Paul is advocating for mentoring to happen in the local church. 
If you want Jesus, this makes sense. Find someone who's doing uh, what you think is a good job of following Jesus and then do what they do. Just copy them. And this is what he says in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Look what it says. The scripture says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God not, may not be revealed. Verse 6, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, do you see a formula there? Here's what he said. Hey, all you older ladies in the room, I want you to follow Jesus, and I want you to go to find a younger lady in the room and teach her how to follow Jesus. And all you, all you older guys in the room, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, find, I want you to follow Jesus, and I want you to find a younger person in the room, and I want you to teach them to follow Jesus. Paul is clear here that every believer at every stage is responsible for mentoring those who are coming behind. You know how I know that? Because older is a relative term. Older than who? Older than you. Let me, let me be as clear as I possibly can here. You have an obligation to disciple other believers in this church. God is not asking you to do this. He is commanding you to do this. And this is happening at every life stage. Senior citizens, you should be talking to the empty nesters. Empty nesters, you should be talking to the middle-aged. Middle-aged, you should be talking to young adults. Young adults, you should be talking to college kids. College kids, you should be talking to high schoolers. High schoolers, you should be mentoring middle schoolers. Middle schoolers, we've got a whole wing over here waiting to be mentored. This happens at every level. And now, we can't miss how practically this is important for a church like ours. Because I don't know if you know this, but we've been a church that is committed to reach every generation. Now, here's what's really awesome about this place. Look around you. Like, seriously, stop for just a second. Look around. Do you know what's in this room right now? Every generation. We got gray hair and we got no hair, okay? We got gray hair. I mean, no hairs and babies, all right? We got some of y'all are like, I feel assaulted, okay? We got gray hair, we got no hair, all right? We got every generation. So here's why this is really important. Let me talk specifically to the older people in the room for just a second. Older than who? Older than me, okay? We need you. Do you know why we need you? Young people are dumb. <laughs> and like, listen, I've said that every time. People are like, ha ha. It's not a joke. Y'all remember when you were 27? Listen, I'm 27. I need you. You know why? I'm an idiot. Do you know, listen, I, this is not a joke. I'm not being self-deprecating here. Do you know half of, probably 97% of all the apologies I give to my wife, how they start? I'm sorry, I was an idiot. You know what I need, really? I'm being serious. Someone to teach me not to be. I need someone who said, hey man, I've been there. I've done that. I know this makes you mad. I know this keeps you agitated. I know you don't want to do this. I know you need to do this. I've been there. I need somebody to come alongside me and show, and show me. Now, don't, don't, don't send me a bunch of emails this week. I don't mean like, like oh, I'll, I'll mentor you, Dallas. Okay, we'll talk. All right? But I hope you catch my drift, that there are people in this room who need people. We need you to come alongside us and get us to the next generation. Now, listen to me, especially the older ones. If you don't do this, then you have no right to criticize the direction that we're heading. There you go. That's good. Okay? But listen, I'm a millennial. 
Okay? I'm sorry. I hate being a millennial. I hate being associated with it. But I hear a lot of times the Gen Xers and the boomers, they talk about millennials like they're the worst thing that ever happened to the country, right? And they may be right, okay? But here's the deal. Have you told them how not to be the worst thing that's ever happened to the country? I mean, y'all are in this today. I like these people visiting, they coming back. Y'all, we're going to talk. But now listen, and I, I want to be equally hard on young people for a second, okay? Young people, do you know what you have an obligation to do when they come? Shut your mouth and listen. I had a guy, he's not here anymore. He, he, he's been dead about a year now. He, when I first got to this church, one of the first things, we have a prayer time at 745. You should come. It's one of the sweetest moments. And he, he, um, he was an older guy. And I, when I got here, I did away with that prayer time. Why? Because I'm an idiot. And he came to me. He said, listen. He said, I, hey, I'm not going... I'm not going to tell you what to do or how to do it, but I'm telling you that people come to this church because we prayed for them to come to this church. And I was mad. <laughs> like, man, have you heard me preach? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not. I'm a sinner, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm telling you. I, I, it made me mad. And I went home, and I told my wife, he, and he, he, said, he said, people come to this church because we pray for them to come to this church, and if we don't keep praying for them to come to this church, God can take them away. And I went home, and I told my wife, you ain't going to believe what he said to me. And she said, well, you may need to listen. And so for two weeks, I walked around mad until I shut my mouth long enough to hear what God was saying. And you know what? He was right. That's good. That's good. Sometimes young people, listen to me, sometimes, and I know we got it figured out. I promise you I know we've got it figured out. <laughs> All right? But as we go through life, we don't see the whole picture yet. Okay? And when someone who comes to us who is older says, I've been there, I've done that, listen, they might be wrong. You know what? They may be not smart either, okay? But you know what you need to do? You need to listen and see. We need to find good examples. Now, one more thing before I move off of this point. Do you know what this is an argument for? This is an argument for radical church involvement. Because you know what you have to do for, th- for this to happen? You have to come. That's right. You have to be here. And now listen, I'm looking at everybody in this room because I, here's, I'm here every Sunday, okay? You know what that means? I know when you're not. <laughs> Somebody like, preacher's calling me out. It's not like that. Listen, I promise it's not like that. Go on. I was on vacation. Go on vacation. Have a good time. Worship somewhere there, okay? This is not like that, okay? But here's what I'm trying to say, that you can't be a part of this if you don't come. And the Bible says... The, the, um, the Bible, the statistics show that now in, my, in 21st century times, right, in, in America, that people who profess to be believers at best are coming to church 1.8 times a month. 1.8 times. Now listen to me. That's not an indictment of you if you hadn't been coming to church. It's me saying you're missing out if you hadn't been coming to church. You need to come. Radical church involvement. Radical church involvement. You cannot be discipled from a distance. Matt Chandler says you cannot be discipled from a distance. So the first thing we've got to do is find good examples if we're going to hold the line. Second thing we've got to do is avoid false teaching. All right, and I've got to talk faster. So avoid false teaching. Verse 18. Look with me what the Bible says. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Now, get this image. Image. Let's read verse 19 too. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. 
now get this image, okay? Paul says you have to find good examples if you're going to hold the line. If you're going to hold fast to what you've attained, you better surround yourself with good people. You better surround yourself with people who are following Jesus. Because why do I need to do that, Paul? Why is this so important? Because there are some who walk as enemies of the cross. In other words, you're going to be influenced by something, so you better be careful about what you allow to influence you. We don't, there are things out there that are enemies of the cross, and if you allow them to, you will be influenced by them. So Paul not only wants to talk about what we're allowing in, he wants to talk about what we should be keeping out. Now, let's talk about this for just a second. What, when, he says, when he says avoid enemies of the cross, what are enemies of the cross? Well, we have to kind of go back and think about what we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. What we know a Christian is someone we've talked about who orients their life around Jesus, right? Does that make sense? If you've been here a while, we've said that Jesus is the center and we center our lives around Jesus. He, he's the center of everything we build around him, okay? That's what a Christian does. I want you to notice how he describes these enemies of the cross. These are people who don't orient their lives around Jesus. These are people who orient them lives around themselves. Notice what he says. Look what he, how he describes them. He says their God is their belly. What does that mean? Their God is their belly. Now, when we think about belly, a lot of times we, think we, we should be thinking about cravings, right? Our desires. When he says their God is their belly, what's he saying? He says that their God is what they want, when they want, and how they want. This is what their God is. They, in other words, they are about them. They are about what they want. He says their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. In other words, the things that they should be ashamed of, their sin, they're proud of. And the biggest mark we see of this is uh, pride, right? Where you should be humble, you're proud. Like, you should be ashamed of yourself, but you're proud. He said these people, they walk in sin and they're proud of it. They glory in their shame and their mind is set on earthly things. Now, put all this together. Why is this important? It's important because if we read this right, what we understand is that this is the mindset of idolatry. Okay, this is the mindset of idolatry. And bear with me, let me explain this for just a second. Right worship is when Jesus is the center of everything and everything is oriented around Jesus, okay? Idolatry, a lot of us who grew up in church, what we think about idolatry is that idolatry is when you bow down to like a little wooden idol, right? You go to a Hindu temple and they're committing idolatry. That's not actually what idolatry is. That's a part of idolatry that can be idolatry, but it's not, that is idolatry, but it's not the essence of idolatry. The essence of idolatry is when Jesus is supposed to be at the center but instead of Jesus being at the center, you take something else and put it at the center. And what these people have placed at the center is the essence of idolatry because they've placed themselves at the center. They say, Jesus, we know that you're supposed to be the center. We don't care. We're going to orient our lives around what we want, how we want it, when we want it. We don't care about you. This is a life is about me mentality. This is the mentality of people who are enemies of the cross. And this is descriptive of the world. They, they live for themselves. This is the essence of idolatry. Now, this is why it's really important. Because we've got to understand that as Christians, if we don't keep Jesus the center, that's when we start committing idolatry. And if we're going to live sold-out lives, we cannot allow ourselves to be influenced by people who live their lives oriented around themselves. In other words, Paul's saying you better surround yourself with good people who live with Jesus at the center because if not, you're going to be influenced by people who live with themselves at the center. And here's why that's so dangerous. Because your natural tendency is to live with yourself at the center. And if you begin to hear that, you know what sounds good? That. 
Well, my, maybe I can do what I want when I want, how I want. Now, my, so I, I'm telling you to avoid, avoid this kind of idolatry. Don't let this idolatry in your life. The question becomes practically, how, where do we see this in the world around us? Okay, I don't want to just tell you to avoid this and you not understand what I'm talking about. Where do we see this playing out? And in modern day, I think we see this playing out in two places, okay? Modern day, we see this playing out in two places. And the first one is what I call in the secular worldview. In the secular worldview. That when I say the secular worldview, does it, do people, you under, uh, kind of understand what I'm saying? Yes, no, maybe. The secular worldview is when you turn on the TV, right, and you see that, uh, and this is just an example of what is secular worldview, okay? This is not totality. But you turn on the TV and you see, like, the American Medical Association has said that gender should not be assigned at birth on birth certificates because that's not um, respective of gender, right? That is the secular worldview. Life's about what you want, when you want it, how you want it. Guess who's God? You're God, okay? Now, that's just an example, but basically the gist of the secular worldview is this. Life is about you. This is, now, and if we're not careful here, we take our cues from the world because it, it comes to us a lot more sub, subtly than that. You know how it comes to us? It comes to us in phrases like this. Take care of you. Should you take care of you? I mean, yeah, you shouldn't neglect yourself, right? The Bible even says no one hates their own flesh. But that idea, take care of you, what's that saying? Life's about you. Take care of you. How about this one? I've seen this one a lot. You deserve to be happy. What's, it, what's the world you telling us? Life's about you. Do what may, Oh, you're going you're gonna to do something that's going to leave a ton of damage in your wake? Do whatever you want to do. You deserve to be happy. How about this one? Look out for yourself. Now, why is that secular worldview? It's secular worldview because it's the exact opposite of the gospel. What does the gospel tell us? Deny yourself. When the world tells us to follow ourselves, what does the gospel tell us? Follow Jesus, right? It's the exact opposite. Now, if we're not careful, we'll turn on the news at night, we'll, go, we'll get on Facebook, we'll scroll through, we'll read about self-help, and we'll read about how we're supposed to look out for number one. And what will happen is that slowly but surely, we'll begin to live with ourselves at the center instead of Jesus at the center. So the first place we see it's in the secular worldview. But even more than that, the second place we see it scares me a little bit more than the secular worldview. Because here's the deal. Most of the time as Christians, we can see the world out there and we can kind of understand that's the world. They're dangerous. Let me tell you where this, this idolatrous thought process is coming from that scares me most. From misguided church teachers. And I'm, uh, this, is, this is maybe a soapbox, maybe not. What scares me more than anything else is everyone in this room having access to be able to watch sermons off of Instagram when, on their phones when somebody just puts their Bible teacher in their link, in their bio? Because all of a sudden, what I'm seeing, it's seeping into the church more and more, but it's seeping into the church at a faster rate than I, than I, don't know, than I know how to put off. But I'm seeing seep into the church this idea where God exists for you and life is actually about you. And I'm seeing preachers teach this. And listen, it's not, it's not just Joel Osteen, right? You think, oh, he's talking about, it's more than that. This idea that life is about you, right? And, and so the problem with that is that, that they're teaching you Jesus is for you. What the Bible teaches is that you are for Jesus. And so we hear th you, 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 you hear things like this. Like God will empower you for breakthrough. God, God is a God of promises and he will empower you for breakthrough. Now, the problem with that, listen to me, church, is that it's a half-truth. 
God is a God of promises. You know what the promises is? The promises are, I've never seen the righteous go hungry or those who follow the Lord begging for bread. He's a God of promises. But very rarely do we see the promise of Scripture of some miraculous breakthrough that just betters your life. You know why it doesn't happen? Because sometimes people suffer, and you know what, how it ends? Death. Sometimes there is no breakthrough. But we get, people get up on stage and they start teaching, hey, life's about you. Jesus is for you. Jesus, this is one that's been, and man, I, I'm probably just offending the crap out of people right now. I'm sorry. I, man, I, ooh, I like y'all. All right. This is one that's been really, that's been really getting on me a, a lot lately. And I told, Jenna looked at me like I was crazy when I started talking about this yesterday. But this phrase where teachers are, Bible teachers are teaching, you are enough. You are enough. Can I tell you what that says? It says you're the sinner, and Jesus is out here, and Jesus is for you. Here's the problem with that. The Bible says you are categorically not enough. The Bible says that you are not enough so much that there's a guy named Jesus who was sitting on a throne in heaven and he had to come to earth to live a life that you couldn't live because you're not enough. And then he had to die on a cross to die a death you deserved because you're not enough. And then he rose again on the third day because guess what? You couldn't do it because you're not enough. And then he ascended into heaven because you'd never make it without him and he's going to prepare a place because you are not enough. You're not enough. So we've got to be careful what we allow in. We've got to be careful what we allow to influence us. Because unless we can back it up here, it shouldn't make its way here. And then it shouldn't lead us here. We've got to be careful. We've got to find good examples. We've got to avoid false teaching. last thing we've got to do is stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. So this is where the challenge actually comes. Hold the line. Don't back up. Don't back down. Stand firm. Look what he says in verse 20. But our citizenship is from heaven, and we and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, real quick, I ha- I've been running out of time to say this, so let me say it real quick, so then I can just run out of time and say something else. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? Jesus is coming back, and you might say when. Here's what I know. It's closer than when it was when Paul wrote this. He's coming back. Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my joy and crown, do what? Stand firm. Hold the line. Don't back up. Now, I love that He says hold the line, but He doesn't just say hold firm. He doesn't just say stand firm. He grounds it in a reason to stand firm. Why should we stand firm? He roots the reason why we should stand firm in our identity. Now, this is really important, okay? We live in a world that is obsessed with identity. We, we see identity playing out in the world around us in a couple of ways, but we, like, we see it most prominently on the news, right? Where people, the, this lunatic question of how you identify comes up in everything, right? Like we, that, that's showing you something. Identity is important. People care about how the, who am I? They want to answer this question. I, we, so we live in a world obsessed with identity, but it's not just out there in the world. This is what wrecks homes. A, a search for identity is what wrecks, home, wrecks homes. It's what happens when a man or a woman comes home after they've been married for 15 years, and they say, I want a divorce because I've got to go find myself. You know what that is? An identity crisis. It's, I don't know who I am. This is why we got a bunch of grown men messing with hobbies instead of taking care of their families because they're trying to figure out their identity. Who am I? 
Now, I love what Paul says here because Paul says, hey, root yourself, stand firm, and do it because of who you are. Now, here's where it gets really good. How does he define us? How does he identify us? Here's what he understands. Identity is not about who you are. Identity is about whose you are. He doesn't care who you say you are. He cares who you belong to. Why? Because who you belong to solves 99.99% of problems in life. Let me give you an example, okay? The most prominent question I ask my little girl all the time is this. Who do you belong to? And man, I love it. This is my favorite thing. She says, I belong to daddy. And mommy gets me fired up every time. I'm like, yes, you do, right? Like, I used to tell people all the time. They say, you shouldn't rock her to sleep at night. She's mine. Like, you do what you want to with your own. She's mine, okay? That was a sidebar, okay? Gets me fired up. So I say, who do you belong to? And she says, I belong to mommy and daddy. Now, here's why I ask her that. Because this, the answer to this question solves her problems. It, it, and sometimes it works better than others, but she goes to bed at night. She's scared, right? I, I, the other night, we let her watch Loki, so she was scared of that. Great parenting move, all right? And so she, she was scared, right? She's scared. She says, Daddy, I'm scared. I don't want to go to bed at night. And so here's what I ask her. Who do you belong to? Now, here's the reason why I ask that, because she answers Mommy and Daddy. Now, when that answer solves her problem. I'm scared that somebody bad is going to come in this room and get me. While I belong to mommy and daddy, they're not going to let that happen so I can sleep good at night. You see that? Identity solves the problem. She, when, we, when I was dropping her off at school for the first time, uh, that first year especially, I'd ask her, who do you belong to? And she could barely say it then, daddy and mommy. But she was worried that nobody was going to come back and get her. And you know what? Reminding herself who she belonged to, that reminded her one thing. I'm always coming back. See, identity solves problems. And what Paul says here is that we need to stand firm, hold tight, not give an inch because we belong to Jesus Christ. And guess what? Jesus Christ is coming back. He says our, we, we, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior. So this is why we stand firm because we belong to Jesus. And so here's what I want us to see. I'm closing with this. The past three weeks as we've looked through this chapter, again and again and again, Paul has put before us a picture of Jesus. And he's saying, this guy, this God, this king is worth everything for. And he's, and he's begging us, center your life on him and don't be worried with anything else. So here's what I want to ask you, church. Are you willing to center your life on him, to orient everything around him, and to follow him with all you've got because you belong to him? Would you pray with me? Dear God, thank you for your word. God, I do just pray that you would overcome the foolish ramblings of a man. God, I know that I feel like I get in your way as much as I'm as much as I'm beneficial, God, and I just pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit you would overcome my ineptitude, dear God, my incompetence, and through the power of your word and through the power of the Spirit that your Holy Spirit would overcome and do what only you can do. And God, I just pray that your people this morning during this time of response would make it a point to pray and to center themselves on you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.